Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. I have our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. We are lucky to have another episode today featuring a co-host. Uh, Mohammed is here with us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm one of the new PGY3s at George Washington University in, in Washington, D.C. I am absolutely passionate about infectious disease and, and everything related to infectious disease, specifically medical education. I am applying to ID this year, so um, absolutely thrilled to be here. Um, and then I'm going to let you introduce our, our guest discussant today. Okay. Today, joining us is Dr. Varun Fatke. He is originally from upstate New York. He did his uh, residency training um, in New York uh, at Columbia. And for fellowship, he moved down uh, south to do an ID fellowship at Emory, where he stayed there as faculty and is now an assistant professor and the associate fellowship program director. He practices both uh, general and transplant ID and is passionate about uh, teaching clinical reasoning. So or the warmest welcome to our, to our guest, Dr. Fadke. Awesome. Thanks, Mo. And thank you, Sarah, for having me on the podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. And so before we get into the case, we always open with a non-medicine uh, related question. So as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, we'd love to hear about a little piece of culture that brings you happiness or joy. Uh, so I can start. Uh, so first of all, I love the pun. I'm a big fan of puns, just <laughs> generally speaking. Um, and, uh, so in terms of things that I'm enjoying currently, uh, so my wife and I, uh, are watching the newest season of the great British baking show. Yes. <laughs> and we just finished, uh, the queen's gambit on Netflix. Nice. Nice. I've been saving the Great British Bake Off so I can watch. I'm going to watch all of it at once. I'm very excited. It gets me. I feel like it always gets me in the holiday spirit, even if they're not doing holiday things. No, it's so true. And we are actually, while we're waiting for the new episodes to come out, just rewatching the old seasons. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so I will just uh, mention our console question today, and then I'll throw it over to Mo to talk through the case. Um, so today we are consulted for a patient who is found to have vegetations on their echo, and the team wants help with evaluation and antibiotic management. So, Okay. So the patient is a 36-year-old male. He's known to have HIV and end-stage renal disease on peritoneal dialysis. He presents to the ED with one-week history of progressive lightheadedness and fatigue. Um, talking to him, he denies loss of consciousness, but can no longer kind of move or stand. He reported a three-day history of nausea and uh, several episodes of non-bloody emesis. Um, a, note, a note to kind of an intermittent positional uh, shortness of breath. While going through the review of systems, he notes that he's been experiencing low-grade fevers, for months now, uh, and actually has lost 30 pounds in weight in the past year. 
So in transit uh, with EMS and in AED, he was febrile to 101.5 Fahrenheit, and he is slightly tachycardic, but with stable blood pressure and respirations. He's satting okay and looks otherwise comfortable. His bedside echo in the ED was suspicious for um, vegetations on the mitral anaortic valve, so cardiology is consulted. Subsequently, a formal TTE does in fact show a small, less than one centimeter uh, mobile mass on the atrial aspect of the posterior leaflet of the mitral valve with moderate mitral regurgitation with an area concerning for perforation. There also appears to be a small um, or a possible small aortic valve mass consistent with vegetation. And in light of the findings uh, on ECHO, the medicine service were asked to consult infectious disease for potential inf infective endocarditis. Then you get more information about his past medical history and, and, and have the chance to examine him. Just speaking about his HIV, his viral load is 30 copies and his log was 1.477. His CD4 count was 190 and at around 11%, uh, around four months from the presentation. Uh, he's not on any opportunistic infection prophylaxis, and he had, oh, he does, however, have a remote history of disseminated or cryptococcosis um, involving the skin and spleen, for which he completed a long course of amphotericin and actually had a splenectomy uh, with no relapses or recurrences in his disease. He is currently on Itaravine, Rialotegravir, and Ritonavir uh, with boosted Durinavir. In the past, he'd struggled with taking uh, antiretroviral therapy, occasionally falling off therapy for months at a time. As far as his end-stage renal disease, it's thought to be secondary to amphotericin toxicity from his uh, cryptococcal uh, infection, um, and he's currently on a peritoneal dialysis catheter. Of note, he's had multiple previous episodes of PD-related um, uh, catheter infections with group B streptococci um, being the last, which was around two months uh, from his presentation. Um, he's also known to have hypertension. And as far as past surgical history, uh, aside from the splenectomy previously mentioned, which happened in 2004, he also had the left upper extremity graft creation in 2007 and uh, PD catheter placement in 2009. Talking about his exam, he looked, he still looks comfortable if he's not in acute distress. Uh, he's tachycardic, but has a regular uh, rhythm uh, with a holosystolic murmur best heard at the apex. His abdomen is soft, not tender, non-distended, and a PD catheter in, is in place without surrounding erythema or exit site infection, or features of exit site infection. He has an otherwise uh, normal neurologic and skin exam. Talking about his labs, he has a CBC that shows a white count of 12.5, um, um, so slightly elevated, with a hemoglobin of 8.8 .8 and a hematocrit of 27, with uh, a platelet count of 872. His chemistry is notable for elevated uh, for an elevated BUN and creatinine. Uh, but he is on dialysis. His liver enzymes are normal. His uh, initial ESR and CRP are elevated with his ESR being at 95 and CRP at 330. His lactic acid was slightly elevated at 
and PD fluid labs and analysis were unremarkable. He did have an elevated troponin that he initially presented with being at 1.71, which peaked at 3.45. His COVID screening test was negative. Talking about infective endocarditis and given the suspicion seen on echo, he had three sets of blood cultures prior to antibiotics sent on the day of presentation. And then he is empirically started on cefepime, two grams Q48 hours, and vancomycin. And both uh, were really dosed and adjusted according to his PD. So he is currently on day four of therapy and actually has two additional blood cultures taken while on cefepime and vancomycin, but have no growth to date. By this time, he's also had a transesophageal echo, which confirms uh, a normal RV and LV function, a small, about 0.8 to 0.7 mobile density on the posterior mitral valve leaflet with moderate mitral regurge and area of perforation. Mild aortic regurgitation with a two centimeter aortic vegetation. So at this point, we've confirmed that there's mitral valve, uh, there's a mitral valve vegetation um, on echo, but we're going to the fourth and fifth day with no growth to date on blood cultures. We start thinking about possibilities and we're considering culture negative endocarditis. Can you walk us through how you would approach this case at this point? What are the key components of the history that you want to clarify? Uh, okay. Wow, Mo, that was a complicated case. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot going on here. Um, and so I am going to kind of slow down and, and do what I do whenever I do an ID consult is sort of just try to first kind of identify the key aspects of the case up to this point, uh, kind of thinking about like a, like a problem representation and, and the components of that in my mind are kind of describing the host in as succinct a way as I can, the time course of their disease and then the syndrome. And all of those I think impact the expected or potential microbiology of endocarditis. Uh, and that's especially key in someone who were entertaining this diagnosis of culture negative endocarditis. So thinking about the host, he's very clearly immunocompromised and in a lot of different ways. So you told us that he has HIV and uh, you said, I think his CD4 count is less than 200 and he has this history of a disseminated fungal infection. Um, so obviously his CD4 nadir must have been uh, even lower. He is asplenic and uh, I guess we don't know if he's been appropriately immunized. And finally, he's on dialysis and has an indwelling catheter, which has already been infected in the past. So as a host, he is at risk for a very kind of broad range of organisms. Um, in terms of the time course, I'm a little bit puzzled because he has this kind of subacute component, but then this more acute component as well with these vegetations and, and valve perforation. So I guess one possibility is that he has one unifying diagnosis that has just now tipped him over the edge in the past week or potentially two different processes with two different time courses. But I think in the interest of keeping things 
straightforward. We'll assume that it is a unifying diagnosis. And so then we come to the syndrome and, you know, we're operating under the assumption that this is endocarditis. And, uh, you know, the tool that we use in this case is, or all cases, is the Duke criteria. And I think right now he fulfills the criteria for possible endocarditis based on the, the modified Duke criteria. He has one major criterion, which is echo evidence of endocarditis. Um, but I am always uh, skeptical about the echocardiographic findings, uh, or not skeptical, but critical. And so even though they're seemingly obvious, um, I think it would still be worthwhile to visit the cardiologist and ask them to review any past echoes that he might have had to see if there's any chronicity to these findings. But let's give him that criterion. And then he also fulfills one minor criterion, which is fever. So based on that, um, you know, he, right now, I think he has possible endocarditis. And I think one thing that I often teach on my teams is that we often think of uh, endocarditis as a very sort of binary entity based on the Duke criteria, like you either have it or you don't have it. But I think in practicality, the distinction that we are usually making is, am I going to treat this patient for endocarditis or am I not, regardless of what the Duke criteria are? And that's what I think prompts us to pursue sort of more invasive workup to figure out how, how convinced we need to be that they have endocarditis, uh, meaning looking for metastatic foci or consulting surgery or prolonging their antibiotic therapy and all of the risks associated with those things. But in this case, I think, I think we've made a pretty compelling case that endocarditis is a strong contender. And so then the question is, does he have culture negative endocarditis um, or culture negative infective endocarditis? Because one of the differential diagnoses of culture negative endocarditis is non-infective endocarditis. So like marantic endocarditis and I don't think you told us any specific risk factors for that, like an underlying malignancy or connective tissue disorder, though the kind of subacute constitutional symptoms might make you consider those um, that have not yet been diagnosed. Um, but let's assume that he has culture negative infective endocarditis, um, which is relatively uncommon. It's like, I think less than 10% of all endocarditis. And I think the formal definition requires uh, three separate blood cultures that have been incubated for at least seven days that are no growth. And if you look at old literature about culture negative endocarditis, the proportion of cases that are culture negative is often quite high, um, but that was shaped by the diagnostic tools that they use to identify uh, etiologies of endocarditis, including the sort of sensitivity of their blood culture uh, methods. Um, so I think that is sort of my sense of the syndrome now. So then you asked me in terms of how would I approach it, like what pieces of history I'd want to collect. And I sort of base that on a framework that I have for thinking about culture negative endocarditis, which is in three big buckets. And the first bucket is what I call should have been culture positive <laughs> endocarditis, um, yeah. which is basically uh, preceding antibiotic therapy. Um, and so uh, I think you have to be really meticulous about figuring this out. So that means asking about recent hospitalizations or outpatient visits where the patient may have gotten even like a single dose of antibiotic for some prophylaxis, um, maybe even calling pharmacies to see uh, fill records. 
And in a dialysis patient, though this is not a patient on hemodialysis, but in a hemodialysis patient, you might even call their dialysis center and say, hey, did they ever show up to dialysis one day with a fever and get like a dose of Vank or Gent while at dialysis that wasn't charted anywhere that you would necessarily have access to? And so I think that would be key elements of the history for that bucket. The second bucket I call could be culture positive if you tried really hard, um, which gets at requiring specialized culture techniques to find the pathogen. And a lot of the pathogens in this category require um, or actually are associated with kind of unique epidemiologic risk factors like animal exposure or dietary exposures, um, specific surgical history like mycobacterium chimera, for example. Um, And then the third bucket is what I call will never be culture positive because it's basically organisms that will never be recovered in a blood culture in a clinical laboratory or just will never grow in culture. And again, some of those organisms have unique epidemiologic associations like and like uh, aspergillus, for example, um, or uh, Q fever, um, or have you know, unique host requirements like, again, aspergillus endocarditis. So those are the sorts of questions that I would be listening carefully for or asking myself when I went to see this patient um, in, in that framework that I just shared. Wow. Wow. That was absolutely fantastic. So I think we've, we're heading towards the social history. So the patient lives with his partner in the, mil- the Mideast of the U.S. He's not employed, and, but he's worked at a bowling alley previously. He denies tobacco, alcohol, or any injection drug use. He has no pets at home and has not had any form of animal exposure within the last year. He denies any raw meat or seafood seafood exposure and denies consumption of unpasteurized milk or cheese. He's never traveled outside of the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, except for Pennsylvania, um, and denies any outdoor activities within the last um, two years. So Varun, can you walk us through the organisms that are on your differential diagnosis for culture negative endocarditis and kind of explain your thought process at this point um, in his specific case? Yeah, absolutely. So social history is the best part of the history. (laughs) Um, And I think no ID doctor would argue with that. Um, And unfortunately, though, this patient doesn't seem to give us any obvious clues for any of the classic causes of culture negative endocarditis. Um, So I just thinking systematically through the three buckets that I just told you about. So the first bucket, which is should have been culture positive, is basically all of the typical endocarditis organisms. So like staph, strep, enterococcus, hasec, um, and so on. And this patient doesn't seem to have received any antibiotics based on the history that you obtained. And all of them should be pretty easily recoverable in the, in the you know, extensive blood cultures that this patient's already had. Um, the one pearl that I often tell uh, people, uh, learners on my team is even a single dose of Vank and Peptazo or Vank and Cefepime would, would sterilize the blood cultures for all of those organisms, um, which is why it's so important to do what you did, which is collect all the cultures 
uh, prior to antibiotics. But I think we're deprioritizing those organisms at this point. So then the second bucket is organisms that you could culture if you tried really hard, but we have better tests for like serologies or antigens or PCRs. And that includes things like Bartonella, specifically Bartonella henseli or Bartonella uh, quintana, Brucella species, anaerobic bacteria, um, including QD bacterium, which will grow in routine blood cultures, but sometimes requires extended incubation, even more than, you know, five to seven days. Mycobacteria, uh, including Mycobacterium chimera, which I wouldn't really invoke in this patient because he hasn't had any cardiac surgery. Um, and that's the organism associated with those contaminated heater cooler units. Um, and then fungal ca- causes of endocarditis. So there have been rare case reports of like cryptococcus causing endocarditis and histoplasma causing endocarditis. And he's certainly at risk given his immunocompromised status. And um, those organisms may or may not be recovered in, in routine blood cultures. So that's another a group of organisms. And then the final bucket is organisms that would never grow. So like Coxiella bernetii, uh, the organism that causes Whipple's disease, uh, I'm going to say just T Whippleye <laughs> um, and and uh, Aspergillus. Um, Sarah can can fill in the T later on <laughs> in 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 post editing. Um, um, so you know he he doesn't have any of the risk factors for any of these though, right? So he's you said he doesn't have any animal exposure or no consumption of unpasteurized milk or cheese. He's not from an endemic area for Brucella. But the one thing I will also point out is even though even though we always ask about these histories, the, the majority of patients with Bartonella or Coxiella endocarditis actually don't report the relevant exposure history. And so you have to basically just order the diagnostic testing anyway, regardless of their animal exposure history. And then in, in his case, because of his immunocompromised status, I'm thinking about some of those other organisms like the the fungi that I mentioned. Yeah, I feel like sometimes people, when they talk about uh, culture negative, they say, oh, it has all the Ellas, like Coxiella, Bartonella. <laughs> right, right. But I like that your buckets can organize that a little bit more than just having this like list that you pull out, because I think it, it also informs what you want to do next by already putting them in those buckets. Yeah, and that's the main reason I I sort of have thought about this framework because it basically tells me how to proceed with diagnostic testing. Yeah. Um, okay. So we get further imaging um, with a CT torso that doesn't demonstrate any evidence of septic emboli. He's also had an MRI of the brain without evidence of septic emboli or my- mycotic aneurysms. At this point, CT surgery is evaluating the patient uh, for possible surgical intervention, specifically for his mitral valve. So, Varun, from an ID standpoint, the workup of culture negative endocarditis can be a, a huge challenge as we try to work through uh, which diagnostics to send. What's your approach? What What are the tests that m- you might be asking from the blood work or possibly the valvular tissue in some cases that they that actually go to the OR? such as potentially this patient? So that's a great question. And I think this is one of the harder consults for us to do because it often feels like our note is just like 
the string of bullet points with <laughs> a very disparate set of tests. Um, and, it, and it feels very like shotgun approachy. Um, and to some extent it is because our history and exam is such, has such poor sensitivity for some of these organisms. Um, and so um, I think, I think it's important to test for things that have been well described to, to be common causes of culture negative endocarditis. So if you look at literature about culture negative endocarditis, um, I think uh, Coxiella and Bartonella are heavily represented, um, though that is definitely biased by the places where those papers are published from. So a lot of those culture negative papers are published from France, where there is like a disproportionate number of cases of Coxiella endocarditis. <laughs> um, and, uh, but then if you look at Papers from other geographic regions, Brucella seems to be really prominent. So that's just one caveat I would say about reading this literature. But I think I think it's pretty consistent that Bartonella and Coxiella are heavily represented. And so I, I would certainly think about uh, requesting uh, serologies for Bartonella and and Coxiella. And I'll and I'll say here that Coxiella serologies are actually pretty good in terms of their sensitivity. And, and in fact, the, I think the, the, the phase one serology for Coxiella is now one of the major criteria in the, in the Duke, in the modified Duke's criteria, Duke criteria. And so that's, I think that's a good test. Bar Bartonella serologies, I think are less sensitive. So I, if I'm working up a patient with uh, culture negative endocarditis, I often also request a Bartonella PCR. In terms of other testing, this patient um, I don't think would warrant like an AFB blood culture because we weren't really thinking about Mycobacterium chimera. But given his immunocompromised state, um, you might send an AFB blood culture, though at the CD4 count you mentioned, I think, I think that would be less likely. I think fungal blood cultures would not be unreasonable, sp looking specifically for histoplasma because Cryptococcus really should have grown in uh, routine blood cultures. Um, you might think about sending fungal antigen tests. And for that, I will refer you to Sarah's prior podcast episode. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, Brucella antibody would be another consideration, though, you know, he really has no risk factors for Brucella in terms of like dietary or animal exposures. So then, you know, you can get into like all kinds of other more sophisticated testing uh, of the valve tissue like you described. And I think if this patient ultimately does proceed to surgery, it's important to uh, be very sort of uh, deliberate about requesting the tests beforehand so that the tissue is sent to the right places. Um, and so obviously you would wanna send the excised valve tissue for you know, bacterial, fungal, and AFB culture. Um, you'd wanna make sure that it's sent to PATH and undergoes all of the associated special stains and immunohistochemistry. And then you can think about sort of fancier techniques like 16S uh, RNA sequencing or like metagenomic next generation sequencing. And you know, I, I actually haven't done that very often and I am not aware of, the, of a very robust evidence base for them. I think there's probably a lot of publication bias like, hey, I found this, let me report it but not the, you know, 9,000 other times that you did it and found nothing. <laughs> um, and the one, the one pearl I will add here is that you can actually send tissue for Bartonella PCR specifically. 
and that actually has higher sensitivity or better better performance than sending the tissue for 16srRNA specifically for Bartonella and so that's sort of the things I that go through my mind when I'm seeing a patient who is on the pathway to surgery yeah and I feel like the universal PCR and the metagenomic sequencing also sometimes they're positive with noise like things that aren't the explanation but when people see it they really want to cling on to it but it may it may not actually fit the clinical picture and I feel like sometimes that happens too which is equally <laughs> frustrating to not having the answer I think yeah, absolutely. And especially in a patient who's got so many immunocompromising conditions, there's going to be this extremely low threshold for calling anything a pathogen, yeah. even if it doesn't actually fit. So let's go forward with the case. The following serologies are sent. Uh, so as you said, or as you mentioned, Bartonella, Brucella, Coxiella, uh, Mycoplasma, uh, we're all negative. And a T Whippley PCR was also negative. Subsequently, antibiotics are switched from cefepime and vancomycin to ceftriaxone and vancomycin. The patient undergoes both aortic and mitral bioprosthetic valve replacements, with the intraop findings being described as the aortic valve vegetation measuring two centimeters by one point five centimeters on the left coronary cusp and the smaller one on uh, the right. The mitral valve uh, is described as having a posterior leaflet that had multiple areas of calcification and smaller vegetation involving the annulus. He does well post-op, and you get the report from pathology with PAS, GMS, mucin, Brown and Hops, IFB, Fontana, Warthensteri, and von Kassa stains, all negative. His surgical bacterial cultures are also negative, um, and mycobacterial cultures are no growth to date. Finally, uh, talking about the surgical pathology, the wartic valve shows uh, a tan pink to tan yellow granular material, valvular tissue with marked acute inflammation, superative necrosis and abundant calcifications with special taining for fungal organisms negative. The mitral valve was, is described as having leaflets um, with areas of ulceration and rolled raised borders. Valvular tissue with marked acute inflammation and abundant calcifications. And again, special staining for fungal organisms uh, are negative. The tissue is actually sent for 16S sequencing and returns back negative. I think there was some consideration for um, uh, next generation sequencing, but the team, I think, eventually um, deferred that option. So unfortunately, we don't seem to have an answer in this case. With all that in mind, how would you approach the antibiotic course in this scenario? and? Would you recommend? Uh, would you be able to recommend the duration and and choice of antibiotics? Um, wow, that was a extremely comprehensive evaluation. Um, we made it quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, I'm I, I probably will let down so several of my 
more microbiologically attuned faculty when I say that I'm not sure what all of those stains are for, <laughs> but I'm glad they were all negative. Um, <laughs> though they don't, they don't, that doesn't necessarily help us. Um, uh, so, I mean, this, this patient has undergone, I think, one of the more comprehensive evaluations that patient with culture negative endocarditis can undergo. I'm not sure that every patient with culture negative endocarditis has a workup like this. So kudos to you for being so persistent about trying to figure this out, um, even though it didn't yield anything. Um, and so I think that really makes antibiotic decision-making hard um, and ultimately comes down to um, a lot of what we do in ID, which is balancing risks and benefits. So if you look at the guidelines for culture-negative endocarditis, um, they basically recommend regimens like the one that you described, so like vancomycin plus ceftriaxone or vancomycin plus ampicillin sulbactam. And those two agents um, are selected because they cover things in bucket number one, right? The, the should have been culture-positive endocarditis. And that's because the base rate of bucket number one is so high. And because the the risks of toxicity of those two antibiotics are, you know, well known. We we use those drugs all the time, and we accept the risks associated with them, um, and often use them empirically. And so I think that is one of the reasons that is the first first line recommendation for culture negative endocarditis in the guidelines. Now the guidelines also suggest that you can add doxycycline if you're thinking about Bartonella, and in this case. Uh, you know, I think you've gathered a lot of data to suggest that it is not Bartonella, specifically a negative serology, negative staining of the valve, negative 16S. Um, you could think about maybe sending a PCR of Bartonella from the blood or the valve if it's if there's any tissue remaining. And, in, you know, doxycycline in the grand scheme of things is not the most toxic antibiotic. So if you were going to suggest adding it, it wouldn't be unreasonable and it would cover a lot of the you know, culture negative organisms that we're talking about, including Bartonella and Coxiella and Mycoplasma and so on. So then, you know, you might wonder, like, what about all those other things we mentioned, like, like mycobacteria and fungi? And, um, and I think, I think that's where the risk benefit conversation really influences our decision making, right? Like we never, or rarely commit people to empiric anti-mycobacterial or anti-fungal therapy in the absence of more compelling data. Like we usually need a lot more, a lot higher pre-test probability or, or diagnostic confidence before we choose those regimens, which are much more toxic. So just imagine, you know, you're not going to put this patient empirically on a rifamycin, right, to cover a mycobacteria. Um, because of the drug interactions and toxicities and so on. And, and you haven't really gathered enough data to support doing that. Um, so I think, I think a reasonable regimen for this patient would be something like vancomycin plus ceftriaxone plus doxycycline for six weeks. And that duration, again, is kind of made up. Um, it's not, there is no duration really specified in the guidelines. That is the duration we use for a lot of the bucket number one organisms that I talked about. It's substantially shorter than what's recommended for things like uh, Coxiella uh, or Brucella, where, you know, months of therapy are often recommended. But again, committing someone to therapy for that long, the risks start to outweigh the benefit when you don't really know if you're even treating something. The other challenge is that following 
response to therapy for those etiologies is based on often based on following their antibody titer. And if their antibody titer at baseline is negative, it's very hard to know when you're done treating the patient. Um, (laughs) So I think um, in this patient, I think one of the main diagnostic tests that's going to be useful, and this is often what I say, is uh, the best diagnostic test is time, um, where you'll treat the patient for, you know, six weeks with some regimen, and then you'll stop and you'll see what happens. And if he doesn't relapse, then... I think that's fairly compelling evidence that he doesn't have one of the organisms that you did not treat. Yeah, you know, this, we went back and forth actually on whether or not we should make it a zebra at the end or not have an answer. And I, I advocated that if I think it's very helpful for us to use this case and talk about what we would do when we don't get an organism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing that I've thought about too is, for these patients that you're not, you're not quite sure you have like some evidence, but you didn't get a bug thinking about, do you commit them to antibiotic prophylaxis for endocarditis right. in the future? And I, I think you kind of feel stuck because you treated them and said they had endocarditis, but sometimes deep in your heart, <laughs> I think you wonder like, was it really infective? I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, and that's sort of going back to what I said at the very beginning, which is yeah. Is this actually culture negative infective endocarditis? And like, this is one of the really hard diagnoses in ID because you're you're stuck proving a negative, which is impossible, right? Like yeah. trying to prove that it is not infective endocarditis. And you, you can send a million blood cultures and a million serologies. And there's still that 0.0001 chance that it is infective endocarditis. Yep. <laughs> so that's, I think that's the challenge. Yeah. Well, we we made this one a toughie, but I will end by asking, is there any other additional sort of uh, tips or pearls that you want to leave the listeners with when you're thinking about culture negative endocarditis? So I think, uh, as I've sort of alluded to all along, I think it's important for, for us to always be very critical of the data that we're gathering. So that means being critical of the history in terms of, you know, have they really not received any antibiotics beforehand? Uh, being critical of the echo, like, is this really a new finding? Uh, being critical of laboratory tests, like, is the negative Bartonella really enough to rule out Bartonella? I think just approaching every piece of data with that kind of healthy skepticism will make you a more sort of precise data gatherer and interpreter and certainly has helped me uh, make some challenging diagnoses. Great advice. Um, Well, thank you both for coming on the show and covering a pretty difficult topic that we have in ID, but I think hopefully the listeners will have learned a lot. Absolutely. Thank you again, Mo, and thank you, Sarah. Kudos to Mo for hosting and creating this episode, and thanks to Varun for an excellent approach to culture-negative endocarditis that I hope y'all can use to care for patients and to teach others. As always, please check out our website, pebralpodcast.com, where you'll find written compliments to the show known as consult notes with references to literature that we talk about, as well as a ton of ID infographics. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febra. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.